Isn't it great to have Angie with us again? Thank you, Angie. Angie from Matchmaker Band in town, Motown covers. If there's a human on earth who can cover a Michael Jackson tune and nail it, you're looking at Angie. I've heard her do it at the highball and at the one-to-one, but never confess that in front of a crowd. Good morning. How are you doing? Those are bars in town, Nashville, in case you're listening, just in case you're listening. It's good to be here. Um, let's, let's do this differently. We have, um, sometimes we have to give things back. You know this? And we're super sad because today's the last Sunday that Tony and Rachel are going to be with us. And they're heading back to England from whence they came. And the queen lended us the most delightful gift. And so I just want to say we're going to be sad. Is that okay? Can I say that? Yeah. So as any, stand up and let's just pray. Let's just, because that's what we do. And Christians don't know what to say. They pray. So I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. So would you guys stand up and let's extend our hands. You guys are heading back on the fourth, fifth, something like that. There will be reveling before they leave, but next Sunday there is no um, service. And so just extend your hand forward as they go back and try to hear God tell them to come back to Austin, because that's clearly, <laughs> that's clearly what baby Jesus is going to say. I'm just saying, Lord, what a gift. Uh, we give you the finest things we have, and we give them back to you, Lord, and we would say prosper and multiply and send them back. But whatever you do, take them places where only they can go and bring what they bring. And thank you for the loan. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Man, we're going to miss you guys. That sucks. Laura. Laura. Can you come here? No, she's going to play hard. She's like, "Mm -mm." Laura's like, "Uh -uh 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 -uh." extend your hands towards Laura. Somebody jump up. Claire, Kelly, grab her. Y'all wrap around her and pray. Laura, we have to give Laura to DC, which is slightly less exciting than back to England to be honest. Although, let's be honest, if any place needs Jesus, my God, it's D.C., right? <laughs> so let's send the other gift that we're having to be, we're, we're not giving these up willingly, y'all. These are being taken by the Lord. But Lord, we pray that you would open doors for Laura, open doors for her ministry, her gifts, her vocation, her talent. Speak to her clearly. And we thank you for the loan. And Father, we pray that it comes back with interest. In your name we pray. Amen. Such fun. If you're visiting, this is what community does. So if when you go back to Portland, you might be disappointed in your church. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> this is too much fun. You should never let somebody with as much ADD as I have do two services back to back, especially when Greg from Nashville's here for twice. Greg, you're going to find out that we never do the same thing twice. It's like jazz. So anyway, uh, I'm excited to be back with you um, going to be gone next Sunday as we're serving the city, but uh, God is good. Last week, we did a partner class, a new partner class, and as always, there's great interest, and God continues to draw amazing people to our fold. I look at them, and I think, what are you thinking? Like, we're a mess. Like, what a gift. Uh, but God continues to put people in our midst, and we're trying to be faithful with that. It's meant that we've had to rethink the frequency of some of the things we do, like new partner classes, for example. We used to do them once a year, twice a year. Now we're doing them much more frequently because God is doing some new things. So I want to put a bug in your ear related to that and also related to what we're going to teach today. But for a while, we've been dreaming of building an IV port in your arm. Do you know what that is? When you go into the hospital and you're going to have a procedure, what's the first thing they do? They put it in an IV. What's that for, nurses? That's so they can drop what they need when they need it, right? Just plug and play, just go with it. Um, we've been thinking of something similar to that concept 
in the space of ANC, meaning I think it's time that we start teaching around some of the subjects that there's a common yearning around. Let me just throw two at you. Oh, say marriage, or oh, maybe parenting, right? Something that not everyone in the room is involved in, but some of us are. And so we've been dreaming of a sort of portal or a way to drop some content into that space. And we've come up with some ideas, and we're going to tinker. And if they don't work, we'll jettison them. But if they work, we'll go with it. But think of like a, a Sunday night gathering, say at 6.30, uh, for an hour and a half, maybe two hours, and then go enjoy some drinks with friends on South Lamar, and then come back on Monday and cap that. Think, think learning communities, not lecture, right? Not subject matter expert teaching you how to think, but a place to gather around tables where there's some content, there's some ideas, there's some questions, but there's also... Uh, a birthing of a network around people who are asking the same questions you're asking. We all want to raise great kids. We all want to know what the secret sauce is to staying happy and married for long term, right? And so those are just a couple of examples. The first offering we're going to plug into that spot is, of course, the seminar we're doing with Kathy Baldock in August. If you've not started to see the dust up around that, if you don't know who she is, Kathy with a K, Baldock, B-A-L-D-O-C-K. She wrote an amazing book called uh, Walking the Bridgeless Canyon greatest 500 pages of synthesis that I've read around uh, communities of faith and the LGBT community. If you've not read it, you've got to read it. She's coming and she's going to do some intense training for us who are advocates and for those who are finding their way and for us as a community. So that's the first thing. But in the fall, we're thinking of parenting. We're thinking of marriage. Maybe in the spring, we'll think of some other subjects, right? Sprinkle this out. But we're thinking of ways to plug into the IV things that I think many of us are, 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 are looking for. Is anyone in the room looking for some help around parenting or marriage. Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? It's just me. You're right, honey. It's just me. <laughs> Everybody's got it figured out but me. But here's the thing. For the longest time, growing up in church, for the longest time, I've said a strong no to everything related to churchiness. So you might say, well, let's do a midweek serve, uh, you know, get-together where we're going to give away free cars. And the Strong no, because it's midweek, because it feels like church. So for me, it's just been an absolute ax. Nope, nothing churchy, but what I'm realizing is that some of us are actually lonely around new paradigms that we're trying to find and discover and bring into our lives. Some of us need a yoga community. Some of us need a place to ask hard questions. Some of us need some content on marriage and on parenting and on various other things. So that's the, that's the reality, but what we're dreaming of is a learning community, meaning network around it, not just somebody telling you how to think. So anyway, we've got lots of gurus in this community, lots and lots, people that I go to for questions on parenting, people that I go to for questions on intimacy and marriage. And so we're going to be tapping into our gurus. We're going to put some stuff in the IV, and you can opt out if you want. And if it doesn't work, we'll just go back to not doing anything midweek, which is also lovely. It's great to be able to be home. Anyway, so during the dog days of summer, just know that your leadership is asking hard questions, and we're reinterpreting as we become an adolescent community of faith, right? As we're kind of going through that rite of passage, we're, we're actively asking questions, and things are on the chopping block. And things that were no might be yes. Things that used to be yes might be no now. So I don't know if that brings you peace or if you're the kind of person who hates change. Hang on because we got a good fall coming. So anyway, as you know, uh, my name is Jason. As you know, we're in the middle of a, of, a, of a series called Jesus Quotes the Old Testament. And I wasn't originally uh, slated to speak today, but Jen is recovering from a hand procedure. It's important that people who blog for a living have full access of their hands. And so she's um, working her way through that, and so she asked me to step in. So it's always my delight to do that. So we're going to jump in today. The book of Matthew, you can start that clock. You better start the clock, because if you don't, we might be here forever. But I'm actually glad that the announcements didn't make on the clock, because I got, I got shanked for the first service. It was like I had five minutes left by the time I got done with the intro. 
That's also another function of ADD, sorry. That's not a joke, is it? <laughs> it's actually a joke. I'm trying to lighten the load a little here. We're going to jump into Matthew 21. I'm going to read the passage to you, and then we're going to have some, some interesting conversation around what may be most often floats under the radar in this passage. You know, I have a sort of interest in those things. So it reads this way. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, and this is quoted, so this is Jesus. He said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children, make a note, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, say the authorities? They asked him, yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Jesus quoting King David. And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Jesus' public fame at this point is beginning to cook with gas, as they say. Things are beginning to take off. Think of this little scene in Jerusalem as, as his ticker tape parade, his coming home, too much fanfare, if you will. Folks are starting to think that the wait was over, that this might actually be the long-awaited one. You see, he fed the crowds and he healed the sick. He walked on water, which was a cool innovation, right? But then he started getting super weird. Then he started saying, you gotta eat this, you gotta drink this blood, you gotta eat this flesh. And as soon as the crowd rises, he sends them home. In today's passage, Jesus channels his inner King David, right, which was essentially the messianic hope, everyone hoping he would restore the kingdom of David. And he channels this by riding a borrowed, unbroken donkey across palm fronds to the sounds of Hosanna. This is a dangerous and a provocative public relation move designed to summon expectation, crowd building again. That is until philosopher Messiah goes postal and loses his effing mind in the temple. Clean that up for you, Trey. <laughs> and starts busting up the establishment without any warning, right? You know the story. He starts flipping tables, angry that such a transactional arrangement designed to exploit the poor would be allowed to happen in the temple of all places. Traveling Jews, you see, would have to come home for Passover, and in order to be in compliance, ceremonial compliance with what was expected for the atonement of sin, would have to purchase unblemished doves and various other animals in order to please God. And in the exchange rate, they were always hosed down. They were always exploited. They would have to exchange foreign currencies at a loss in order to be legally acceptable you know, free market capitalism. No comment there. We'll move on. But you see the rhythm. Nobody caught that. Never mind. 9.30 was much more awake. You guys have all had the chance to read your latest articles in The Economist, so you're not laughing. It's not even funny. But you see the rhythm. He builds it. Then he knocks it down. He builds it. And then he knocks it down again. And I'm just saying, if I was his life coach, say, oh, I don't know. If my name was Tony Ruane, I might say, get yourself sorted, man. Go have a lie down. That's not even funny. That's a terrible English accent. I can't tell you how many times in the last month Tony has said, well, go have a lie down after we've watched an exhilarating, you know, soccer match down at the Black Sheep Lodge. We're all off the rails. Remember that score when uh, Columbia went up 1-1 and we were just devastated? We, we both had to go have a lie down after that. That's a nap in Texas, y'all. That's a nap. 
But Jesus is beginning to lose it, and if I'm his handler, I'm starting to say, listen, there's a rhythm here. Figure this out. Stay ahead of the wave. You can't surf behind a wave. You've got to stay. When the crowd builds, say something nice for God's sakes. Don't tell them to eat your skin, drink your blood. Don't tell them to do these crazy things. Don't start flipping tables. But the real scandal wasn't the mental breakdown resulting in tables overturned, you see. It was the prophetic proclamation of children that made the leaders indignant. Says the, says the text. And it was Jesus' willingness to leave them in the picture of power and announcement and influence that the authorities could not abide. You see, there's several places in this little text where Jesus actually quotes the Old Testament. He uses the language of Isaiah when he talks about the house of prayer. And then he uses the language of Jeremiah when he talks about the den of thieves. But neither of those caught my eye this week. What caught my eye was the shocking and flammable little detail about children doing the proclamation and their proximity to power that upset the establishment. Jesus quotes Psalms. Traditionally, uh, this, is, this psalm is, is attributed to King David. He's, he's building this donkey imagery and these words from King David to get people to understand that this is the kingdom he's introducing. There is no lack of weight on everything he's saying in this point. And so he quotes Psalm 8, and this is the, this is the quote that interests me most, and it reads this way. Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And it's the opening drum roll of an epic stadium anthem from a rock band, say, I don't know, Coldplay or Toto or something large. You get the imagery. O oh Lord, oh, majestic in the heavens. And then he says this, and this is what Jesus quotes. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And he goes back to that anthem. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind? What are children? What are infants that you are mindful of them, human beings that you take care for them? This is the quote Jesus drops in the middle of the frame of power and indignation. Children. What are they doing in such close proximity to talk of avengers and foes and enemies and power and Passover and everything that's going down? What are they doing in this little frame? Jesus quotes this for a reason, I'm guessing. Of course he does. Why does Matthew specifically mention that the religious authorities were indignant that children were shouting Hosanna? What's going on here? Kids are always shouting. Don't you have any? They're always shouting. The text says that the leaders had already seen the wonderful things that Jesus had done. They had already seen the healings of the lame and the blind and the, and the lepers, but none of that mattered because of the absolute unacceptable scandal, the unmentionable place of honor that Jesus gives to the children. They are the prophets in this text. They are the ones who proclaim and announce the lordship of Christ. So what is going on here? I don't know a ton about engineering. I, don't, I know less about sailing, but I know a thing or two about kids. At least I thought I did. I've raised five, raising five. Five are raising me. And until a couple of weeks ago, I had four out of five were teenagers. Now one of them's beyond teens, so back to three out of five being teenagers. Here's a confession for your listening pleasure. I read more than just the Bible. Uh, let me try that again. I read more than just books written by conservative Western Christian authors. In fact, I don't read that many of those anymore. Not alarmed yet? Okay, here we go. I read things that fall way outside of the Christian tradition. Sometimes for that reason only. Okay? 
Where am I going with this? When it comes to the subject of children and parenting and intimacy and relationships and family, I need to know more than just what was written 2,000 years ago about the subject. I need to know more. I need to know more than just the theology of a single person named Apostle Paul and his organizational thoughts around the community. I need to know more than just that. Give me more. I need something more than just philosophies born in patriarchal systems that consider children most valuable when silent and not present. I need more than just that. I need to know what Jesus thinks about kids, right? When I say that Jesus is my standard of truth, that he is the standard of truth through, through which everything must harmonize here at ANC, what do I mean? I mean that everything that we can affirm that harmonizes with the way Jesus was in the world is worth considering as truth, and we've got it all over the place, and it comes to us from much more recent places than just 2,000 years ago. Are you upset yet? Hang with me. What am I saying? When it comes to children and marriage and parenting and sexuality and such, I want to know what Jesus taught in the subject matter, but I also want to know what good science and current research and open minds can affirm as truth from the outside of this tradition as well as from the inside. I want to know what's going on. I want to know what we can affirm to be true. Remember, as long as what we affirm harmonizes with Jesus and his posture towards the world, I'm listening, are you? And we ought to. You say, well, give me an example. Well, Let's start with the fact that wives aren't property, although they are in this text. Children aren't property. Slaves aren't property. Children ought not be stoned for disrespecting their father, and we shouldn't make anyone move to Dripping Springs for eating bacon. (laughs) Right? Outside the city, you get it? Are you feeling me? We've got to do some other work than just what this says. So the gospel truth about children that I'm discovering lately, and frankly what is saving my soul lately, comes from the most interesting of sources. Oprah Winfrey's podcast. I don't mind being honest with you. And if that means I have to give up my man card, you know what? I could could care less about that card anyway. The writings, the thoughts, the comments, the work, the research of Dr. Shafali Sabari has been saving my soul lately. If you need to know how to spell that name, I get it wrong every time, email me afterwards and I will give you some reading that will just blow your brain up. But here's the catch. What she's saying now, through research that she's doing now, harmonizes in the most astonishing way with what Jesus is trying to say in this text. So I'm going to make a bold claim. I'm going to ask you to hang with me. And we're going to back into this very slowly. You ready? Here it is. In so many ways, our children are our spiritual teachers. And until we realize that, we're striving to accomplish the impossible. We're effectively pushing water uphill, and we're trying to do it alone. And the the mounting frustration as our children grow up and as they rise in our presence, as they find their voice and they find their own way, probably has a lot to do with the fact that we failed to consider how it is that they are our equal partners in this journey to God. They, in effect, are our teachers and our guides. Now hear me, because this might change everything. This might be actually the little hinge that changes everything in the way you're doing family and the way you're doing life. Your child is heaven's gift to you, perfectly designed to undo whatever vestige remains of your sense of control over, well, anything. You name something in your life that was not reinterpreted when heaven's gift was brought home from the hospital. The arrival of your child, hear me, is the prophetic proclamation about the future of your false narratives about power and control. Essentially, your child is the perfect nuclear bomb to destroy your ego, if you can handle that. 
You see, they're born into original goodness. Yes, I said original goodness. If you're a theologian, if you've done any reading whatsoever, you know how scandalous that thought is. But they were born in original goodness. If you don't believe me, go back to Genesis. Of course they know the ways of love. Of course they demand unconditional love. Of course they know how God stays present in the midst of chaos. Of course they do. After all, they just arrived from the heart of God into your space. So spit out the bones of the old teaching that demands that we look at our children as little devils that we must save by our Christian example and our praying in public when you eat at Cracker Barrel and whatever it is we do that tries to... <laughs> That's for you, Pee-wee. <laughs> My gift to Pee-wee this week was to go to Cracker Barrel to see if their pancakes are better than Chevelo's, and lo and behold, they're not. Chevelo's has better pancakes. But if you grew up in a space that looked at your children as flawed inherently when they arrive and it's your job to save their soul, what I'm suggesting today is a much better way to look at your life. They come packaged in original goodness. They are the answers. You see, most of us don't get our prayers answered when it revolves around our kids because we're asking the wrong things. We look at our children as problems that God needs to help us solve and God says your answer is what's crying in the room next to you. I hope you can hear how serious I am this morning. You say, wait a minute, preacher, you don't know my kid. You're right. You're right. Some of your kids I do know. You're right, I don't know your kid. But I do know this. I know the trajectory of love is away from the building of your ego that preserves your control over your children. I know the direction that love takes all of us. You see, I also know this. God knows your child's name. He knows what pulls their heart. He created them to rise. The question is, can you tolerate that? Or is there rising too threatening to your notions of the world that need to die, need to fall prostrate before the cross? He is their teacher. Listen, take a deep breath. I know this is a big thought, and I know it runs cross-grain to everything we've ever taught ourselves, we've ever thought about children and coming up from the generations in which we were raised. I know it's easier to run the plays we've seen run by our parents, but they aren't working, are they? Question mark. Are they? Is it possible to be the perfectly compliant child that learns to preach in his teens and lead worship in his teens and goes to the perfect Bible school? Is it possible to have your heart completely wicked and corrupt, although be in perfect external compliance? That's my story, y'all. It doesn't work. It's not working. And it certainly isn't working with this front row, which is brought to this earth because I married this one right here. It's not working. And here's the other thing I know. We're stuck between philosophical paradigms at the moment. We're kind of stuck in the middle. We don't want to raise soldiers. We're not going to beat our kids with these little things that say growing kids God's way, right? We're not going to force feed them Dr. Spock, which we grew up on. Did I mention something that stepped on a little callus there? Growing kids. Did you guys read that book when, you, when, you, when your kids were young? Oh, I want it all back. I want all those years back. We're stuck between paradigms. We know we're not going to do it the way Spock said. We know we can't do it the way the Ezo said. We, but we also know we don't want to raise little hippies who are destroying nannies on their way to jail. <laughs> One after another. You can't keep a nanny in the house. What's the deal? Hurricane. That's the deal. So we're looking for a new paradigm. We're looking. We're craving for something that works. Here's my point. We know we're not going back to where we came from. And we're not super sure where in the hell we're headed but we know we need something more. Now you would say, how can I accept this reality that my child is my teacher? I would say there are things, of course there are things, that we are put in their world to teach them as well. Of course we are. I'm not suggesting that, they, that there's nothing for us to teach, but here's, listen to me. When it comes to our posture towards wonder 
and our uncanny inability to yield to power, I'm talking about your child, when I'm talking about the resilience of will and the capacity, the undying capacity for delight, the amazing ability to be in the present moment and the willingness to let unconditional love land and stick in our souls, I'm telling you that they are our instructors. They are our guides. And we would be wise to learn from our little ones. And now you think I've lost my mind on July 22nd. You think, well, his brain's overcooked. It's 106 degrees outside. Let me ask you this question, church. What do you make of Jesus' teaching today? Let me reread these verses. You tell me what you make of it. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replies Jesus, have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And if that's not clear enough, let me just remind you of these words that Matthew records and attributes to Jesus himself in Matthew 18. It reads this way, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like the little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, we've softened this scandal of this command over the years. We've made this palatable. We've called this spiritual childlikeness or innocence, and we've made it something that's essentially something we do with our heads, right? Surely we don't have to actually become like these little ones, except that's exactly what the text says we must do. You say, that can't possibly be. My kids are stone-cold insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how deep and how long have you been at war with what rises in you and what rises in them? If you're trying to catch your breath this morning, let me just be honest with you, so am I. I've been choking for 20 years on things that didn't work. It feels like pushing on a rope. Have you ever done that? Absolutely nothing happens on the other end. You can push as hard as you want. Nothing's happening on the other end. I'm choking out, spitting out the bones of 20 years of bad thinking, and I was taught it was theological. I want all those years back, y'all. I want them all back. If I could rush to the side of that tiny cradle in that little house on Washington Street, and if I could comfort my child who's crying and just needed to know that we were there, if I could figure out how to reverse the time and have those years back, I would do it in a New York minute. Because we were taught that God raised kids by instructing that they're not in control, and so you introduce the, your sinful little child into this world by teaching them from the get-go that they don't have a voice, that what they feel doesn't matter, and what they need ought not be of consequence unless it's mealtime. Thank you, Dr. Ezzo. I would take it all back if I could. I would rush to the side. I would bring that child into my bosom and just let love teach me its unconditional nature. I wouldn't teach her to bend her sense of self and will to my needs and my schedule and my watch. You see, she was trying to teach us something. But we couldn't learn it because we were too busy thinking we were the teachers. And we didn't learn from her. We learned a little better with her second, her younger sister. And by the time we're going to have grandkids, we'll have this figured out. We'll realize that sugar isn't the death of us that schedules don't equal godliness, right? In so many ways, you guys, this teaching isn't any easier than eat my flesh and drink my blood. In so many ways, the curious position of children in the center of power and the center of influence 
is no simpler than eat my skin and drink my blood. Some of us, this is just too hard. It's too far. We're too deep into this. We can't change now. Some of us say, this is it. I don't understand. I can't, I, I, I can't hang with this Messiah. But listen, this doesn't not work because our kids are idiots. This is something that we've not toyed with and we've not entertained and we've not tried because our control-preserving, ego-motivated power struggle with our little teachers insists that we win because we're bigger. You know I'm right. We've convinced ourselves that they are what's wrong with our lives, but the real deal, the real answer is we are what's wrong with ourselves. Not them. I hope you can hear it. Here's the truth you're looking for if you're looking for truth today. If we don't find a way to become them, guys, if we don't learn from their posture and their wonder and their delight, this whole spiritual journey is going to feel foreign and clunky and off balance for the duration. It's never going to fit and it's never going to work. It's never going to hum like it ought to hum unless we can figure out how to become them. Hear me. The true enemies of heaven are the inner narratives that tell us that spiritual complexity and duty-driven performance and guilt and shame and obsessively trying to earn and maintain heaven's approval with our little dance and our little jig and our little performance. The problems, the enemies of heaven are those ideas because they require that we maintain control and the gospel is the invitation to let that go. It's not about behaving perfectly and children teach us that. So in today's text, children do the proclamation honors that this is actually the Messiah we've been waiting for. Their tender voices are our prophets. And this gentle rebuke is delivered deep into the heart of empire. And here's what it is. Unwind. Let go. Go back. Simplify. Hold tight. Be present. Love unconditionally. Follow the children. Become innocent and childlike. But most of us would be rather be dipped in oil. Can't figure it out. It's about me. It's about my control. In conclusion, here are my thoughts. When we needed to know that God was present, he said, eat something and remember me. And when we needed to know what love actually looked like, he becomes a baby. And he reminds us that if we can't take complexity all the way back to infancy, we might never actually understand how heaven works. There's no other way than that of a child. There is no other way. So here's my encouragement to you. When you leave here and you pick up your child from ANC Kids, bow to your tiny sensei. Accept heaven's message to you. Accept the gospel message that you don't have to actually be in control that they can teach you at least as much as you can teach them. And that if you're wise, you will mimic their posture towards wonder and heaven and love. They are your perfect little answer if you can accept it. They'll break you down. They'll wear you out. That's why they're here. And that's the journey we're on. And I think that's the gospel for us today. Let's